Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We are again working our way through the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have covered them all up to the very end. I'm going to reread the Beatitudes as we've been doing in the last few weeks so we get them all together. And then we will continue with our last two verses of this section, verses 11 and 12. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And this is the word of the Lord. I'll start in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, last week we covered verse 10. Let me read that again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I wanted to make clear, this is not referring to anyone who's persecuted for any reason, not even Christians who are persecuted for any reason. This is referring to believers, the people of the kingdom of Christ, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for being selfish, or not for being self-righteous, or not for being all these other things, but for true righteousness. And even then, persecution will come, and it's a sign that we belong to the kingdom. And now we're going to cover verses 11 and 12. Let me read them again. Verse 11, 12. I'm, I'm titling the sermon, by the way, The Impossible Command. Rejoice in persecution. And let's, let's read those verses, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I call this the impossible command because it, like all the Beatitudes really, is something that cannot be done truly without the incredible supernatural help of God the Holy Spirit working in our lives. You do understand what this text is saying. It is saying when someone lies about you and deliberately misquotes you, misrepresents you with malice in their hearts because of your connection to Jesus and righteousness, you are commanded. This is not an option. This is a command. When that happens to you and me, we are commanded to have real joy in our heart and gladness within us. The parallel text in Luke 6 says, in that day, rejoice and leap for joy. So he's talking about emotion. Please don't, don't make these joy verses unemotional. It, it, it's, it, th this is a kind of leaping for joy command in the midst of being lied about, maligned, reviled, and called all kinds of wicked things. How in the world do we respond to that with joy and leaping for joy? And that's what this text 
is, is here to help us do. Now, I'm going to give four, I've got all kinds of things to cover today. There's a lot to cover here. But let me give four precursor statements here from Don Carson. I think these are worth noting. So here, here they are. We are not to sinfully seek persecution. That there is a way to sinfully seek it, to just, to just almost be trying to just pursue it in, a, in, a, in an ungodly way. We're not, we're not trying to chase persecution down in the streets. Number two, we are not to sinfully avoid persecution. You know, there's a time where Paul says, let me down out of the window in the basket, right? To get me out of Damascus so I don't get persecuted further. There's a time to flee in the midst of persecution. That's not always wrong. There's also a time to stay and trying to choose our battles can be difficult, but we are not to sinfully avoid persecution. You hear me? There are valid reasons to get out of town, right? Paul gets out of Damascus before they kill him. That's not wrong. But there are also sinful ways to avoid persecution, like just capitulating to what people want you to do and say so that you don't get called out for it. Number three, we are not to sinfully sulk when we are persecuted. I mean, this is so difficult. I can, I mean, I've, I've experienced this kind of persecution in my life this much, but I've experienced little, little glimmers of it. And my first instinct has never once, I don't think, maybe there's exceptions, I can think of very few times my first instinct in the tiny amount of persecution I've experienced as a Christian, and I've experienced a few things here and there that I think I could label as minor persecution, I have never once immediately responded with joy. I respond with a kind of, well, what about this, and why not that, and wanting to self-justify. Number four, we are not to sinfully retaliate when we are persecuted. So we should not seek it out. We don't need to always avoid it. We don't need to sulk when we experience it, and we don't need to retaliate sinfully when it happens to us. Well, again, are you feeling how impossible this is? This is unbelievable, this command. And I'm, I'm going to assert something here at the beginning and spend a few minutes on it, and then I'll get to the official points of the sermon. Those were not the points of the sermon. These are introductory comments. Uh, I've got some introductory comments I want to make about one topic that is often confused and misunderstood, and I, I'll put it this way. If we don't understand the Bible's teaching on heavenly rewards, I think we will find it harder to rejoice in these situations. If we don't understand the Bible's teaching, Jesus' teaching on heavenly rewards, I think we will find it more difficult to rejoice. Now, before I say anything about heavenly rewards, let me say something real quick at the beginning. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about how, you know the word mercenary, doing something for money, a mercenary? You could have a mercenary soldier who's paid, or you could have someone, this is the worst kind of situation where, say, someone marries someone else, and they do it for the money, right? This does occasionally happen, right? I've heard of a scenario where this happened. And so, someone, someone is in a relationship, and they are really faking that they love this person because this person is extraordinarily wealthy, and they want to get that money. Now, we would all agree that the reward of that wealth coming from that complete facade of a fake love relationship is not good. That is not right. So are we saying that are rewards always like that? Are rewards always like that, doing it for some other reason? It's a selfish sort of thing? Well, no. C.S. Lewis says, listen, if a man loves a woman because he loves her, he just loves her, then if he pursues her, dates her, gets engaged, and gets married, the marriage is a legitimate reward for his love for her. It's not mercenary. He's not doing it for the money. He's not doing it for something else. He's doing it for the right reason because he loves her and he wants to know her better. Similarly, I believe that the rewards Jesus teaches here are not things that ultimately are other than more of Jesus. 
I don't think these rewards are sort of things on the side that are just really great but don't have anything to do with knowing Christ. I think that whatever the rewards exactly are in heaven, they ultimately go back to a deeper and richer knowledge of and delight in the person of Christ himself. Do you understand that? And the next thing I want to say is these are not rewards that we earn by merit. Okay, we believe in salvation by grace. We also believe that when God rewards believers for their good deeds, which I'm going to argue he does in heaven and eternity, the reward God gives us for our good deeds are gracious times where God crowns his own grace in our life. So what does that mean? In other words, the only reason we've been changed is by God's sheer grace in our lives. And then God chooses to reward what he did in us. It's grace crowning grace. None of it is merit. None of it has been earned. And so, so hear that out, and I want to work through some texts here. And you don't have time to turn to all of them. Just listen as we go through these. Luke 6, the parallel of this passage. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's interesting. For so their fathers did to the false prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. When people tell them what they want to hear, they get accolades for it. But I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Now listen, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Listen to Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you hear that? As we give the cup of cold water, God remembers, and there is a reward. Matthew 6, it's in the very next chapter. You can look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. In Luke chapter 19, li listen to this. You remember the parable of the talents? Luke's version has the parable of the minas, which is a similar idea. Listen to the conclusion of that parable. The first came before him, the owner, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Now listen to this. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you shall be over five cities. Now, do you hear? This is strange to me. I'm not sure fully what this means. But this parable, it's a parable, so don't push the details too far, right? This is a parable where Jesus says, when we have invested what God has given us in this world, and we have tried by God's grace to love others well with what he has given us in, in our life, ability, talent, treasure, money, time, opportunity, as we invest that for others and for God's honor, when we do that... Jesus sees us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he, he sets Christians over different 
levels of authority in the kingdom. You'll be over five cities. You'll be over ten cities. In some way, the future reward has something like that to do for us, some kind of responsibility in the kingdom that the Father gives. And does He give the same amount to both servants? No, He gives five to one. He gives ten to the other. So again, do all Christians receive the equal amount of rewards? No. And you're going to say, wait a second, that sounds like that could breed envy and quarreling. I'll get to that in just a moment. Bear, uh, hang with me here for a second. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says in verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his reward, same word, according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. He says now, remember, he compares the church to a building with a foundation. The foundation is Christ. And he says you build on it either with gold, silver, and costly stones or wood, hay, and straw. And then he says that the final judgment, each one's works will be revealed for what they are. The fire will disclose it. And he says this, each one's work will become manifest. It will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Same Greek word. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So are both of these people in this situation saved? Yes, but one had more good works. They had gold, silver, and costly stones they had built on the foundation of Christ, whereas another one had built on Christ wood, hay, and straw. Their works are burned up. Their works are preserved in the fire of judgment. One receives great reward, and one is saved, but only through escaping through flames of fire. They, their, their works are burned up. So again, you see this difference. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Do you hear this theme? Uh, one more. Luke 14. This, this one is amazing. When you give a feast, do not invite your friends and your wealthy companions because they'll repay you and they'll give you another feast, but rather, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because... Now, no, just listen. You throw a feast... And you, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to your big Thanksgiving feast, right? And then Jesus says, if you do that, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And you're going, that does not add up. I throw a big feast for people who can't pay me back, right? And I exert all this money and energy into this feast, and no one pays me back, right? And I'm blessed because they cannot pay me back, yes. Then Jesus says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you hear this? That God gives a reward for the good deeds His people do. These awards, no, again, these rewards, this is so important. I should start over. These good deeds do not earn salvation for anybody on earth. No one has merit in their good deeds. That is blasphemy. All have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. None of our good works saves any of us. But our good works will demonstrate that our faith is genuine at the final judgment. It will prove our faith is real. And God will reward us in accordance with our good deeds that He graciously wrought in us. Now, 
Listen to Jonathan Edwards from 300 years ago. You can't improve on this kind of quote. This is Edwards about differing degrees of rewards in heaven. Doesn't that create envy and hatred between Christians in eternity if we all have different levels of rewards and happiness? Here's Edwards, and you you just can't say it much better than this. This is awesome. this This is great. It will be no damper to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign through the whole society." Those who are not so high in glory as another will not envy those that are higher than they, but they will have so great and strong and pure love to them, those that are higher than us, that they will rejoice in their superior happiness. Their love to them will be such that they will rejoice that they are happier than they themselves, so that instead of having a damper to their own happiness, it will add to it. Here in this world, those that are above others are the objects of envy, because Others conceive of them as being lifted up with it and prideful about it. But in heaven, it will not be so. Now, this is a beautiful statement. Such will be the union of their society in eternity that they will be partakers in each other's happiness and then will be fulfilled in its perfection. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one of the members is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That is an awesome thought. So, The vessel, the capacity we have to understand and delight in God, I believe, and Jerry, we've talked about this in the past, that this is an ever-increasing thing, that as we grow in our knowledge of God in eternity, our our, uh, capacities expand. We ever-increasingly grow in our knowledge of God. We don't become omniscient upon death. Angels aren't omniscient. We won't be omniscient, but we will be ever-increasingly expanding in our knowledge of and appreciation for God and His glory. And as we do it, each Christian's capacity, their vessel will be of different size and shape, but none of us will be envious of one another. In fact, if you see someone who's way further along than you, you'll be all the happier that they know Christ in an even fuller capacity than you yourself have the ability in this moment. When one member rejoices, all the members rejoice with it. So that doctrine needs to be firmly in place, I think, to better understand the text in front of us. So let's look again at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I have three points. Number one, rejoice in what your persecutions will do for you and others in the present. Rejoice in what your persecutions will do for you and others in the present. Rejoice in what your persecutions will do for you and others in eternity. So in the present is point one, in eternity is point two. And point three, rejoice in whose company your persecutions bring you. And it's astonishing to think about that. Rejoice into whose company your persecutions bring you. So point number one, rejoice in what your persecutions will do for you and others in the present, in this world, right here and now. I'll reread from the opening part here today. This is for you personally, right? Listen to this. From 1 Peter 1, I opened the service. I'll just read part of it. In this suffering, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, the 
perishes, although it is refined by fire, may be resulting in the praise and honor and glory when Jesus is revealed. Now, listen, when you experience persecution for your faith, God is taking your faith as if it is gold that is impure. It's been dug out of the earth, right? But the gold has dross and imperfection and dirt and all things mixed in with the gold. And so God loves you enough to put the gold of your faith through the fires of affliction and persecution. And so that through that, He can burn out the unbelief the lack of reliance on God, the self-reliance, the pride. He can create humility, show you how much you need the Lord. He burns out the imperfections of the gold of your faith. Every time you go through affliction, every time you go through persecution, your faith is like gold getting more pure and more pure until the day when you meet the Lord Jesus. That is a reason to rejoice. See, see listen, when, when bad things are happening in your life, we need faith in God's promise that God is working this for my good. He's making my faith in Him more pure, more sound, more healthy, more whole. He's making me more like Jesus. It's a guarantee. If you know the Lord, every single bit of affliction in your life has purpose. Not any of it is wasted. I don't care how small it seems or how enormous it feels. Maybe it's an affliction you've been thinking about every day for the last 30 years. Maybe it's an affliction that happened this morning and it's relatively small. The Lord has promised all of it is going to be like a fire that is testing and purifying your faith to make you more like Jesus. You, you, there's other texts, uh, you know, uh, James 1, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because you know that the testing like in a fire of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How about a less familiar one? Psalm 119. Do you remember these in Psalm 119, 67 and 71? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. How about how our affliction and persecution now blesses other people? How, how, what does that look like? We talked in Colossians. You can go back and look it up. I won't talk about it now in detail. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, For I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. In other words, Paul says, I am getting to demonstrate some bit of Christ's sufferings in my sufferings. I get to show you something of what Christ's suffering love is like, and it's a benefit to you. It is a blessing to you. In Ephesians, he says, don't be ashamed of my sufferings, which are your glory. This is for your good. But this one's a little more concrete. 2 Corinthians 1. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? Why are we comforted in our affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we, we ourselves have received from God. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Do you hear that? As Christians endure hardship and affliction and persecution, and we are growing and clinging to Jesus and experiencing his comfort, we are able to turn around and encourage others who are going through similar things themselves. And our comfort and affliction leads to their comfort and their salvation. It helps them to hold fast to Christ in the midst of their persecution. How about how our afflictions benefit unbelievers? Acts 5. Now, I know these people did not become believers, most of them, but it at least gave them an opportunity to hear the gospel. Acts 5, remember, Peter, James, taken to the Sanhedrin, they're beaten with rods. They're told, don't you ever say the name of Jesus again. Get out of here. Don't you talk about Jesus again. They've been in prison already. 
I love this. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Do you understand? It's an honor. It's a privilege. It's something you're counted worthy of to stand in for Jesus on earth. And when someone is directing their hatred towards him, it hits you because you're his body on earth. It's a privilege to stand in the place of Christ and to take the blows in, in his place here on earth. Like when Jesus said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Every persecution against the church is aimed at Jesus on the throne. And the, the disciples leave and they go, you know, we're real. We're, we're real followers of the Lord because we just took a literal beating and we are leaving rejoicing. What effect does that have on the non-Christian beater in that situation? The one who just did the beating. They see them leave rejoicing. That makes you stop and think, doesn't it? If you're not a believer and you witness that, it's got to make you think. How about Stephen in Acts 6? We mentioned him recently. Listen to this. It's so similar. They set up false witnesses against him. Remember, he blasphemes God and Moses, which wasn't true. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council, most of them are non-Christians, almost all of them are non-Christians, all who sat in the council as they're, as they're insulting and lying about Stephen, they, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The peace and joy of the Lord was so on him that when he's on trial for his life under false charges that he knows are lies, he has the calm serenity and joy of an angel. Do you think that had no effect on anyone watching that day? And as he dies, he falls down and says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. They witnessed this kind of supernatural peace and joy. And I'm sure some, Saul was one of them, later becomes a believer. Point number two. Rejoice in what your persecutions will do for you and others in eternity. What, what your persecutions will do for you and others in eternity. Let's start with other people. 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Remember Paul's last letter? We looked at it last summer. Paul's about to die before Caesar, about to have his head cut off with a sword. Some of his last words, he says, he speaks of my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything. Like, Paul, why are you doing this to yourself? You don't have to be in jail. You can get out by just saying different things, and they'll let you out. Why are you sitting in jail waiting for your death? I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God has his chosen ones. And I know through my suffering and my preaching, God's word is not bound. God's going to save his sheep. They will hear his voice and they will follow him. And I know God is going to use my suffering and my persecution. He's going to use my words and my preaching to actually save his elect. So I'm rejoicing in my suffering because it's guaranteed success. Not one of his sheep will ever go missing. He will save all of his own. It is for others. We suffer and endure for the sake of others. How about in Philippi, you know, when they put in jail. The crowd joined in attacking Paul and Silas. The magistrates tore the garments off them. I'm just, I know we know this story, but act like this is happening to you. Just think about this. They tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. I just, just try to picture that happening to you. 
For the next 15 minutes, they rip the clothes off of you and they beat you over the shoulders and on the back and on the legs and maybe on the head some with rods. What would you do in response? They threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So you're beaten. You can't even attend to your wounds because now your hands and feet are locked in the stocks. How would you respond? How would I respond? Would we grumble? Would we complain? Would some of us get mad at God? God, why are you doing this to me? Why would you let this happen? I was just trying to be faithful. How do Paul and Silas respond? You, you, know, you know how they respond. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You better believe the prisoners were listening to them. They were non-Christian prisoners, no doubt. And they were listening. Why? Because these guys just got a horrible beating, insulted publicly and shamed. Now they're locked in the stocks in the worst inner cell, and they are still faithful to their God, still praying to their God. They're singing hymns of praise to God at midnight. You better believe every ear in that prison was listening attentively. It has an impact on, on others when we are faithful. And of course, after the earthquake, the jailer is converted to Christ that same night. What about what, uh, what our persecutions do for us in eternity? What do our persecutions do for us? I'm paraphrasing this from another pastor, but this is just really helpful. Listen, I hope this is encouraging. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, your persecutors are adding to your eternal reward. When you are sinfully persecuted against for righteousness' sake, your persecutors, unbeknownst to them, are adding to your eternal reward. Just to give a silly illustration, if every time you were mocked or insulted, $10,000 appeared in your bank account, it would probably change your perspective on your being insulted. Just a little bit, right? You're like, I don't really mind so much because every time it's actually of benefit to me. Well, I know that's a worldly illustration, but listen, as long as you basically think that in persecution and affliction, you're losing something, then you're going to be prone to be sullen, bitter, angry, doubting, and unbelieving, and fearful, and anxious. If you think affliction can actually rob you of something essential to you, if you think it can actually take away something essential to you, then you are going to be tempted to be responding sinfully to affliction and persecution. But if you see affliction and persecution as adding to your eternal reward, it's not actually taking from you, it's adding to you, it's going to be a very different response. There's going to be a flood of joy saying, in some way, when I am persecuted, in some way, this is adding to my eternal reward. You know that picture in Revelation, if it's our crowns becoming more glorious, what do we do? We, we get to cast those crowns before God. We get to praise Him all the more. So don't see persecution as robbing us of something. It is adding to our eternal reward, and in which case we can actually rejoice and leap for joy because great is our reward in heaven. I want, to, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 real quick. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's, let's flesh this out a little bit more. There's several texts in a row in, at the end of Hebrews that, that show this pretty vividly. Look how this works. It's amazing. Uh, Hebrews 10, start at the end of the chapter, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. When he says they were enlightened, he's referring back to their conversion. Hebrews 10.32, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened and you came to know Christ, you endured a hard struggle 
with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, other believers who were in jail, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you hear that? So here's the deal. Some of the Christians were put in jail for their faith. Back then, they didn't have cable TV, a weight set, and free food okay, in the prison. And back then, you go to prison, you get no food unless someone feeds you. Okay? They, they gave you almost nothing to eat, barely keep you alive. So they have a choice. The other Christians have a choice. Let, let's say some people in our church are put in jail and there's no way to feed them. We're the only ones who can feed them. Here's our choice. We can keep worshiping as a church and ignore the fact that five of our members are in the jail down the road and very hungry, or we can publicly identify with them at the jail, feed them, and risk the same persecution turning on us. You get the scenario? So what do they do? Some of their beloved friends are in jail for their faith. They go, we can't leave them there. We're going to go have compassion on our friends in prison. And when they do it, when they go public, all the ridicule comes, all the lying and the scorn comes, and suddenly their property is plundered. Whether it was an official governmental confiscation or a local just mob burning something down, I don't know. But read it again, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So it is our confidence in our treasure in Christ that that leads back into the present and allows us not to cling to things in this world as tightly as before, because now we have this eternal joy in Christ that frees us to rejoice when our things are plundered. Turn, Turn to the next page, chapter 11 of Hebrews. Look down at verse 24 of Moses. Hebrews 11:24. Similar idea right here. Hebrews 11:24. By faith, so faith is going to be the root of all this. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. My my son got into King Tut recently. Kids go through that stage. That's a fun stage. King Tutankhamun, or however you say his name. So we were reading about King Tut, a little kid's book. It's fascinating. Hadn't read about it in a long time. And they talk about how they found this hidden place, the unplundered, you know, the one unplundered place of, the, of an Egyptian pharaoh, young boy, probably 18 years old. And when the man finally got through the final wall into the main treasure chamber, you know, that sarcophagus where it's just solid gold, you see there's multiple layers, almost like nesting dolls of, of, of coffins that go down to the solid, famous gold, with the, the, the snakes on the top that we've all seen before. It's just solid gold. The thing is priceless, unbelievable worth and value in that. Moses was staring at that kind of treasure in Egypt. He could have had any kind of physical, intimate relationship with any woman he wanted. He could have had any kind of material wealth he could have wanted. 
He lived to be 120. We're talking 120 years of sheer pleasures of sin. They're fleeting pleasures, but they can last 120 years, and then they finally wear out. I mean, they wear out as you go. But at the end, after 120 years, it's over. He looked at that, the King Tut type stuff. He looked at that kind of wealth and that kind of treasure and pleasure, and he said, I would rather be mistreated with God's people for 40 years in the wilderness than spend the rest of my life with that. How does that happen? This is not, how, how do you get to that place? And look at, the, look at the verse again. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, being mocked for following the Messiah, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Do we actually see, listen, it is better, it is better, it is more to be delighted in, it is more blessed to be criticized unjustly for righteousness and for Christ than to have all the wealth in this world. That is an astonishing way to look at life. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? He was looking ahead to his final reward in the Messiah. Look at Hebrews 12. So the benefit for us is what we're looking at. The benefit for us includes our Reward. Look, look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. We should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What got Jesus through Gethsemane and Golgotha? He was looking ahead to the, to the reward, which was honoring his father through obedience, and saving his bride. That was his reward. His joy that was set before him was honoring his father by saving his people. And he saw that joy in the future. And in his humanity, as much as his human nature did not want to endure the agony of Calvary, he said, I would rather have the joys of those rewards in the future with the father and my people than skip the cross. It got him through Golgotha. It got him through the nails on Calvary. It got him through abandonment by the Father because he was tasting something of that coming joy. He was tasting the reward ahead of time, and it got him through. The joy set before him allowed him to endure the cross. Turn to chapter 13 of Hebrews. I'm going to come to my last point, the third point. Rejoice into whose company your persecutions bring you. Rejoice into whose company your persecutions bring you. Now, Jesus gives us one company. I'm going to add two more. The, the one he gives us is the prophets, right? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going to add, I'm not adding to Jesus. I'm, I'm simply adding what the rest of the New Testament will say about what Jesus is saying. The two things I'm adding are, we also get to join in the suffering, not just of the prophets of old, but of the worldwide suffering church today and of the Lord Jesus himself. That's a pretty good group to be a part of. The prophets, the worldwide suffering church, and the Lord Jesus. Who would not want to be in that group? Who would want to be outside of that group? Just to give a sampling of the prophets. Jeremiah. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The officials said to the king, let this man be put to death, for this man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. They didn't like his message. 
So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of the king's son, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. One of the most dignified humans on earth at the time was thrown down into a muddy cistern to rot until they pull him up later. We join in the likes of Jeremiah and others. What about the worldwide church? 1 Peter 5.9, listen to this. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, listen, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Listen to that again. Resist the devil, firm in your faith. When suffering comes, when persecution comes, resist it. I mean, resist giving in. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. But most importantly, it's the Lord Jesus Himself. You're in Hebrews 13. Look at verse, let's start in verse 11. Hebrews 13, 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Listen, I'm almost done, but just hang with me for a few more minutes. For all of us, you know, I'm going to make this sort of bit of an analogy here. We all have the camp, the gates of the city. We, we all have a comfortable places in our life where it's easy. It's easy to be a Christian, right? They're our camp, our easy place. But then there's outside the walls. There's outside the camp where it's Golgotha. It's not easy, right? This text is not simply saying, be willing to go outside the camp and suffer. It says, when you go out the walls of the, of the safety of the city and you go out towards Golgotha, don't forget that that's where Jesus is. L- look at it one more time. V- verse... Verse 12, but just one more time. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Paul speaks about the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. You know, I... This is a long time ago. Random thought just popped into my head. This is just going to sound silly, but uh, there was an old U2. You remember the band U2? I've gotten a little older these days, okay? But U2, okay? They had a documentary called Rattle and Hum back in the day. And there's a scene in that documentary from like the, maybe the early 90s or something where the drummer of U2 was obsessed with Elvis. Absolutely, like literally, I think, idolized Elvis, which I'm like, okay. And uh, whatever you want to do. So he w- worshiped Elvis. And, well, he, they end up going to Graceland, Elvis's home, you know, and they had Elvis's actual motorcycle there. And the drummer is like, you've got to let me sit on it and take a picture. Please, please, please. And they're like, no, 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 no one's allowed past the rope. You can't get near the Elvis's motorcycle. It'll, you'll ruin it. Like, don't get... Finally, they talk them into it and they get him and he gets on the motorcycle and he gets to take a picture and he's on Elvis's and he's just talking about, you know, this is incredible. Okay, that's a silly illustration, but here's what I'm getting at. All of us have these things where you're like, if I could just stand where so-and-so stood, if I could just sit in the seat, you know, I, I one time saw Spurgeon's desk at a conference. They brought it in and put it on the stage. They said, this is Spurgeon's actual desk. I thought, well, that's incredible. You know, I, this is going to sound even distracting, but Scott one time for my birthday bought me 
an actual piece of paper Spurgeon had written on with purple ink that he had edited his sermon manuscript on. I have one leaf, which I, don't, I never asked him how much it cost, but I love it. I have it hanging up on my wall framed. Now listen, I, I, I've taken that, I'm, I'm just going to say, I, I, did, I do not worship Spurgeon. Please do not misunderstand. But I, I have taken that paper, I've like held it. You can like see like a thumb smudge on the purple ink. I'm like, this is Spurgeon. Like he's got the watermark from London. You hold this thing, like this is incredible. I'm holding a sermon manuscript that Spurgeon held and edited. Amazing. What is, there's something about us. We want to be able to sit where someone sat, to hell, hold what they held in their hands. You understand? When you are afflicted for the name of Christ, you get to sit where Jesus sat. You get to experience what Jesus went through. You get to come to know Jesus in a way that you will never come to know Him in any other set of circumstances that in the affliction and suffering of Christ. There is a fellowship. There's a way to go, I cannot believe I am privileged to sit in this chair of suffering for Jesus. This is an incredible honor that, that, that we are we're counted worthy to suffer disgrace for His name. This is an amazing place that we get to sit. I mean, forget Spurgeon's desk. We have this incredible opportunity to know Christ through affliction in this life. I'm going to close with a story of some missionaries who are in China. Listen to, I get this from James, uh, from James Boyce in his commentary on Matthew. This truth is best illustrated by a story. Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Matthews and their daughter Lila were the last missionary family of the China Inland Mission to leave China after the communist takeover at the end of the Second World War. And the story of their last two years in China is one of great persecution. For the better part of their two-year captivity in China, they lived in one small room. Their only furniture was a stool. They could not contact their Christian friends for fear of subjecting them to reprisals for, be for befriending aliens. Their funds were cut off by the government except for the smallest trickle. The only heat they had came from a small stove which they lit only once each day to boil rice for dinner. Even the fuel which they used was made by Mr. Matthews from the refuse that animals deposited around the streets. For a time, the couple submitted to the treatment stoically, asking all the while that God would soon deliver them from China. Stoically, there's no emotion, just we're going to grit and bear it. At last, a turning point came in their outlook. They realized that Jesus Christ had come from heaven not merely submitting to the will of his Father, but delighting in it. And they saw that their own experience was comparable. It was an opportunity for the radiance of joyful obedience to be manifested in them and in which their conduct could be a supernaturally effective witness. After this, they came to rejoice and even to sing hymns. And they came to accept the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ with as much joy as they later experienced when they learned of their pending deliverance. Do we have that kind of perspective on our afflictions? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it, it is truly incredible that when you, God, in the flesh came to earth that you would receive the title man of sorrows that's amazing king of kings and lord of lords is a fitting title but man of sorrows is the title that you received 
You bore our afflictions. You carried our sorrows. The punishment that was for us was on you, and by your stripes we are healed. Lord Jesus, thank you that the ultimate affliction, the ultimate suffering is not martyrdom. The ultimate affliction and the ultimate suffering is the just judgment of God against our personal sins that would take all of eternity to be fully meted out and that time would never arrive where we had exhausted God's justice against us. But Lord Jesus, you took the full wrath of your Father, the abandonment of the Father on the cross. You took our sins into the grave. You left them behind. The old man has died. The new man has raised new life. Now we have been given new life and status in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. They're cast away as far as the east is from the west and as far as the heavens are above the earth. So far is your love high above us over all those whom you love. And God, the, the closest any believer will ever get to true suffering is the sufferings of this life, which are fleeting. And God, I pray that we would have our hopes set on eternity, that we would joyfully accept the plundering of our property because we know we have a better possession and an abiding one. And God, where we need repentance, please Help us repent. None of us is where we need to be on this issue, not one of us. I pray that we would gain some ground this week and next week, and that little by little we would become more and more like Christ in this. I'm going to read from a couple of passages in 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Heavenly Father, again, we would ask that you give us the grace to begin to truly rejoice in suffering of all kinds, knowing that suffering works holiness in us. It can help us to encourage and be an influence to others, both believers and unbelievers. And it also gives us a greater appreciation for the reward and the treasure that is coming in eternity, which revolves all around knowing you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God, I pray we would be able to do that faithfully, and when we fail, that we would race to the cross for forgiveness. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.